Good evening, everyone. On behalf of Pratt CEO Carla Hayden, I'm Roz Valencina, Director of Communications here at the Pratt, and um, I want to thank everyone for dealing with the heat, not only inside the library, but also outside, of course. But, you know, my nice little segue here is it may be hot in Baltimore, but we do have a very hot author right now, as they would say. Um, his new book, Sex on the Moon, has been recommended by a lot of, of magazines right now, including Entertainment Weekly, GQ, Parade Magazine, and NPR. And the subject matter is pretty simple, you know. How many of you have fallen in love, head, heads over heel over someone, and you just wanted to give them everything or impress this boy or girl? Um, you could probably give them chocolates or, you know, jewelry or jumped out of a, like, skydived or bungee jumped and, you know, I'm not talking from experience here, but anyway. <laughs> but there's this one gentleman in Houston who decided to really promise someone the moon, and he did it literally. And his name is Thad Roberts, and that he is the main character of Ben Mesrick's new book, Sex on the Moon. So we're so happy to have Ben back here in Baltimore here at the Pratt Library. Um, he's the author of 12 books, including Sex on the Moon, of course, and Bringing Down the House, which turned into the movie 21, starring Kevin Spacey, um, Jim Sturgis, and Kate Bosworth. And, of course, one of his most popular books it was The Accidental Billionaires, about the founding of Facebook, that turned into the award-winning movie The Social Network. And the last time Ben was here was when he was telling us all about the Axonel Billionaires and how it was being turned into a film, and he was chit-chatting with Aaron Sorkin and everyone else. So we kind of got a little glimpse of what was going to happen in the next two years. Two years later, there was an Oscar for Aaron Sorkin, a Golden Globe for the writing team for the Axonel Billionaires, or the social network, that is. And we saw Ben on top, uh, you know, right at the podium of the Golden Globes accepting a Golden Globe. So we were... I couldn't, you know, help but tweet that day that, like, oh, I wonder if the Pratt gave him a little, you know, good luck charm. So we're hoping to do the exact same thing tonight here with this new book, Sex on the Moon. Now, this is how it's going to work tonight. It's going to be a little different. Um, we're going to have, um, it's going to be more like a conversation with Ben Mesrick. And the person who's going to be interviewing him tonight needs no introduction. You see her every afternoon on WJZ. She anchors the 4, 4.30, and 5 p.m. news. She's a seasoned reporter with, um, I believe, countless uh, AP awards. And she's, of course, a personal friend of mine, um, Mary Bavala. So without further ado, you didn't come here to listen to me, you know, babble on here. Please welcome Ben Mesrick and Mary Bavala. Hi, guys. How are you? So Ben got up really early today because he was on... WJZ's morning edition. What time did you get up this oh, morning? Oh, I had to get up at 5, around 5. Okay, yeah. so we'll give him a break. I asked if he got a nap, but I know he has... How old is your son? He's uh, 16 months. Okay, so, right. Yeah. So I assume he takes a nap a little bit, but I don't he know if He doesn't take can. many naps. Right. You know, little boys, I have two of them. They're balls of energy. So um, so hopefully you've I'm had a fine, little okay you've had a little caffeine but thank you for getting up you're always i know it is part of the deal but you're always so accommodating for oh. like local media which is really cool i know that you have ties to baltimore your yes. parents are in the audience My which is really live nice here. they live in the inner harbor and they love it so uh coming home in the middle of a book tour is really nice so it's cool 
So let's talk about, last time you were here, we were talking about the social, well, we were talking about accidental billionaires, which I actually think is a better title than the social network. (laughs) Were you happy with how the movie came out? I mean, it was phenomenal. When you get the call that Aaron Sorkin wants to adapt your book as a writer, it's, you know, that's the dream right there. And he did a phenomenal job with it. And uh, I like the title Accidental Billionaires too, but the social network, it worked very well. And David Fincher is a genius. And the whole thing came together just perfectly. I mean, it was just one of those situations where it happened so fast. I mean, from book to movie, the movie was coming out, you know, on, right on the heels of the book. Um, the screenplay was finished right after I handed in the book. It was just this crazy situation. So it, it was wonderful. And, and it was, a you know, right when I sat down in the theater and the opening scene where she's dumping Mark Zuckerberg and she's like, dating you is like dating a Stairmaster. How great is that line? <laughs> So, you know, it was great from that moment on, yeah. Have you ever heard from Mark Zuckerberg at No, I've all? heard a lot from Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah? <laughs> um, you know, he called me the Jackie Collins of Silicon Valley. Um, nice. Yes, which is nice, you know. Uh, Facebook originally was not thrilled. Um, they felt very strongly that this was not the story Mark wanted to tell. <clears throat> I was talking to Eduardo and the Winklevi. Um, and... Uh, you know, but in the end, it ended up working out very well for Facebook. I mean, it was a huge movie for them, and Mark ended up on the cover of Time magazine, and, and Facebook looks great right now, and he's worth many billions of dollars. So um, in the end, he's not unhappy. And I actually met uh, Sheryl Sandberg, who's the COO, at my college reunion. We were classmates, and I was kind of scared to talk to her. She ran over and grabbed me and was very sweet and said, you know, I was enemy number one at Facebook for a year, but now they were happy and and they even invited me out there. So uh, it's been positive since then. Fantastic. I know these are nonfiction works. Do you like who they cast in that movie? I mean, you spend so much time with these characters. I mean, it was was such a great... uh, Justin Timberlake was awesome. You know, when I first heard his name, you know, you're like, really, Justin Timberlake? But he's the perfect Sean Parker. He's kind of the rock star. And then Jesse Eisenberg should have won the Oscar. I mean, he was that good. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was awesome. You know, for me, um, reading Accidental Billionaires was earth-shattering because I thought Facebook was started by some corporation. You know, I'm right. like 40. I don't know. and But yet I'm on Facebook and so are 750 million other people. It was a really important story to tell. And I don't know. We might have seen a little bit on Facebook on um, 60 Minutes and whatnot, but it was a story that needed to be told that I don't know if it was going to be told. Yeah, I mean, this was a story. The way it was told would never have been told. I mean, Eduardo had been erased from Facebook's history, and it all started. I got a random email, 2 in the morning, and it was a kid saying, my best friend co-founded Facebook, and no one's heard of him, and I go for a drink, and it was Eduardo, and he was angry. He felt betrayed that, that Mark Zuckerberg had kicked him out, and uh, so the story we told was really the origination story um, from a lot of different points of view, not just from Mark's point of view. And uh, so, no, the story wouldn't have been told. So that's kind of cool. And, you know, as a journalist, I pride myself on sort of he- always hearing about, like, if there's a big story. So here comes your next story. And right away, before I even opened a page, I said, I cannot believe, you know, I read the back. Right. I can't believe I haven't heard of this. Right. Is this really true? Did this really happen? Or is this, he's finally writing fiction, what's going on? <laughs> And then, you know, so I go to the internet, and I'm like, how did I not, I'm embarrassed I did not hear about this. How did you come to hear yeah, about n- this? Yeah, nobody had heard this story. I had never heard it before. NASA had covered it up. 
Um, they didn't want it to get out. And what happened was um, this kid, uh, you know, it's an incredibly wild story. This kid was uh, from a very tough background, Mormon household, gets kicked out of his home for having premarital sex, ends up deciding he wants to be an astronaut. He goes to NASA. Um, he, he's working his way towards being an astronaut. He's still a college kid. And then uh, he does something crazy. He falls in love with a girl, and to impress her, he steals a 600-pound safe full of moon rocks, uh, a piece from every moon landing in history. Um, it's really incredibly, this huge theft. Um, and he goes to jail for a long time, and NASA covers it up so no one's heard of it. And then I get a call. Um, I've become kind of the go-to guy every time some crazy college kid does something wild. And, uh, now, how many solicitations Oh, I get, get 20 to 30 a week. Uh, a week. A week. And now mostly through Twitter, actually. But it's this random, you know, people come to my website. They call. I have a phone number that's listed just so people can call. And it's just this continuous, you know, stream of stories. And this one, a, a couple of people who were mutual friends who knew me, um, they knew this kid and they said, you got to, this kid wants to talk to you. You got to tell this kid's story. Um, so I, I flew out to Utah. He was on probation. And I was meeting a kid who'd been in prison for seven and a half years. Um, so I'd never met someone who had spent that much time in prison. And I'm kind of scared of people in general. But this was a guy who was really in jail. So I, I met him in a crowded hotel lobby. Um, and he was the nicest guy, you know, really charismatic, really good looking, um, really just, you know, smart and, and interesting and, and had done something utterly crazy and stupid. And, uh, and I was like, i got to write this. And I looked it up, and no one else, you know, one article. There was one article in the L.A. Times at the time, and then nothing else. And uh, that's crazy. So where do you go from there? You talk with this guy. You're like, this is a story, right? right. And it does it meet your criteria? What's your criteria? Well, I do have criteria. It's got to be young kids doing something wild, um, uh, money, sex, betrayal. You know, usually I write about geeky guys who can't get laid. <laughs> I was, I was really curious how the sign for that is, actually. But, but, um, and uh, and uh, in this case, it was about a, a geeky kid who could get laid. And so for him, his problem wasn't that he couldn't meet the girl, but that he kept meeting the girl. Um, the first thing I did, though, is I, I thought it was such a crazy story that I needed to know how much of it was true. So I immediately filed with the FBI uh, a Freedom of Information piece of paper to get the FBI file on Dad Roberts. And that took eight months before that file came in. So I interviewed him over the year waiting on this file. And then I got this thousands of pages of, of incredible documents. I mean, everything from what he had in his pockets to the FBI agents were wearing wires when they took him down. And I have the transcripts. And the first thing he says when he gets you know, into the restaurant to sell the, the moon rocks is, uh, if you're wearing a wire, I'm screwed right now. <laughs> so you know, you know you're screwed if you're saying that to an FBI agent. Um, so I, I had all the information, I get all the court documents, and then I start trying to find everybody. And so were people cooperative with you? No, and they never no. are. Um, right. You so know, how do you get around <laughs> that, though? Um, well, Axel Emmerman, who's, so he tries to sell these moon rocks. And you can't sell these things. So the most valuable thing on Earth, a single gram was once offered for $5 million. They're illegal to own. They were brought back during the Apollo mission, so they'll never be gotten again. There's only 840 pounds of moon rocks in existence and he stole a 600-pound safe, which had only 100 grams in it, but it was a piece from each moon mission. So it was incredibly valuable. And then he goes on the Internet and finds some dude. Um, you know, this is where it's crazy. I mean, any one of us would know that would be stupid, but 
He obviously doesn't. And this guy is a Belgium guy, never been out of Antwerp, and his name was Axel Emmerman. And I found Axel. Um, and so he was one of my main sources. Um, I found the girl, but she didn't want to talk. She was very unhappy. I changed her name in the book at her request. Um, I found, uh, you know, uh, Gordon, there was a stoner guy who helped him sell the rocks, and I found this guy. This guy was a, a freak in a lot of ways. The first thing he said was, you don't think we really went to the moon, do you? <laughs> Which is like, an indication. No, no, we don't. Considering he went to jail for five years for selling moon rocks, he would think he would think we did. Um, and then uh, NASA scientists didn't want to talk to me. Um, NASA was very embarrassed by this case, and they told everyone not to speak to me. Um, but a lot of the people did want to talk to me, so I was getting information through a variety of methods um, from NASA. So, <laughs> the title. Mm. I'm at the pool last week like this. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And a few stay-at-home moms walk by, they go, Mary, let me have that book after you. I go, absolutely. So the title is brilliant. Oh, thank Who you. Who came up with <laughs> That was my wife who was oh, here. Oh, really? Um, yes, she is the mind behind Sex on the Moon. I was going to call it Lunar Heist or the Moon Rock Caper. I don't even know. <laughs> exactly. And uh, there's a scene in the book, and it's a true scene, when he pulls off this, this thing, he gets these moon rocks, and he spreads them on a bed and has sex on the moon because he wants to be the only person to have sex on the moon. So my wife was like, why don't you just call it Sex on the Moon? And uh, it seems to be sticking very well. Um, yeah. And hopefully this will be my first movie where they have to keep the title. How oh can they gosh. possibly change the title? So, um, yeah. They have to keep the title. I would they're going to feel like they have to change it, right? What is that process when yeah. you're working with? Is, is the screenplay done yet? No, this one that's being written right now, okay. um, I sold it to the same producers of The Social Network. Okay, which is so Aaron Sorkin. Aaron, uh, no, Sorkin oh, no. wrote it. It was Scott Rudin. Scott. Uh, Kevin Spacey, Kevin Spacey. Um, Dana Brunetti, and Mike DeLuca. Okay. They made 21. Uh, Scott Rudin wasn't involved in that. but um, So it's the same people. And uh, it's uh, being directed uh, and written by Will Gluck, who's got the new Justin Timberlake, Mila Kunis movie coming out next weekend. Oh, um, and he's, he's, he's amazing. He did Easy A. Um, so I think it'll be a really cool script. And so the process is he's meeting with the main character. He'll come to Boston uh, and, and sit and meet with me and go through my research and then he'll adapt it and uh i'm a consultant on that so i get to have input um but i don't have any power uh, i'm right. powerless so um once i'm on the set i'm like the caterer or below the caterer <laughs> and uh and i'll just hang out there but you'll be on set i will be on set i'll visit i'll, I'll be there a lot and uh and i'll have input and um you know we'll see what happens do you do they have the actor for thad no it's 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 too early for that so the script will be finished first hopefully by the end of the summer, and then once they have a script, then they start to cast it. Um, so who knows? I mean, I know he likes Justin Timberlake, so that would be cool, but I don't know what will happen. Yeah. Right. That has to be like a, a – that's going to be a tough casting thing because that's kind of a complex guy. He's very complex. He's innocent but really smart. Right. He's naive but not. Right. I he, mean, the whole thing. He's a mix of like this smart kid who you like and a con artist. So right. it's kind of this character that has so many – you know, some people hate him. Some people read the book and, and, and hate him. Uh, my dad, you know, read the book. My dad is an engineer by background, right. read the book, and hated this kid. I mean, this kid stole, you know, something that people, you know, went to the moon to get. Um, but then when he met that, he was like, you know, he is a likable guy. <laughs> so it's like, right. you know, it's one of these characters. He's very charismatic. Um, and, and, you know, it's going to be interesting to see who they cast. What did you love most about the story? It is your first romance novel. It is my Jackie first Collins. romance, so when you read it, be gentle. It's my first attempt at romance. Um, 
you know, I, I think what I liked about it is the complexity of it. It's, it's, I'd really written about a lot of guys who, you know, you, you knew why they were doing what they were doing. Um, and it was fun to ride along with them. In this case, I really didn't know why he did it. You know, he did it out of love, but he only knew the girl for three weeks. And, uh, you know, and he was already planning the thing before he met her. Um, but he wasn't really serious, or was he serious? It's hard to know when you read the story. Um, so for me, there was a lot of complexity to him. He's so smart. And then he goes on the Internet and sends out an email, does anybody want to buy a moon rock? I mean, there's so many aspects to this that don't make sense. And then he steals this thing that's so incredibly valuable, and he's going to sell it for $100,000. Yeah, what is it worth? I mean, well, it's really hard to say. I mean, 100 grams priceless. could be $500 million, or the FBI said $21 million was their calculation. But that calculation was based on the entire amount of moon rocks in existence and how much it would cost to get them again and then take 100 grams of that. And they came to, to $21 million. Um, But, you know, if you were to attempt to sell it on the street, who knows what you would get? Um, <laughs> you know, it would be hard to do. Um, so I don't know. I didn't understand that when I met him, and I think that was compelling to me. So what I liked about the book as well is, uh, as I was reading it, the shuttle is going up for the last time. Yeah, right. So I think, honestly, how... Real quickly, how long does it take to get this movie to the big screen? The movie will probably take, I mean, it's really hard to say. Right now, I think on IMDb it says 2013, but okay. I don't know if that's... But that's not that long. But oh. in terms of the timing of your book being yeah, released... it was a good time. That was pretty brilliant. And it wasn't, it was completely coincidental. I had nothing to do with the shuttle launch. Um, but it was, a, it was just random. Um, I, this kid came to me, but I always wanted to write about NASA. I've always wanted to Why write about NASA. That, because I think it's a really cool place. I love the whole, you know all these cool toys and smart people working together to do something crazy, you know, go to the moon. Why? Why go to the moon? But it's neat, and I'm glad we did it. Um, but also, when you think of NASA, you think of the 60s. You think of Tom Hanks in a little silver capsule going around the, the world. And that's not what NASA's like today. NASA's all about Mars, even if it's impossible, they're all about Mars. Um, it's all about these cool toys, little robots and Mars rovers and satellites and stuff like that that you don't ever see because no one talks about NASA without talking about the moon. Um, so I really wanted to get in there, and then coincidentally, um, the story came to me. So, you know, the timing, it's sad, the shuttle ending. Um, but at the same time, maybe something next will happen, and, and that will be the next exciting thing. Well, for me, you captured the essence and the inside of the Johnson Space Center more than I've ever read anything about. Oh, like, thank I you. felt like. Yeah how they were all like kids in a candy store. Like, yeah. you really felt that, not just with that, but the other kids there as well. So there's, like, that whole aspect of the book that I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And then the shuttle, the last shuttle. You, part of your research brought you. You felt like you needed to go into the Johnson Space Center. Yeah, and I shuttle. did. And, I, you know, NASA didn't want me there. They didn't want me to, to do this book. So I knew I was kind of cut off, so I did what any writer would do, and I went on NASA's website, and I signed up for a tour. And they have something called a Level 9 tour, which is this deep inside tour of NASA, where you go inside mission control, and you go to the giant swimming pool where they sink a space shuttle underwater. And I sign up thinking they're going to cross-check my name, and I'm not going to get in. And nothing happens. So I fly to Houston, and I show up, and I go to NASA. And I'm wandering around. I get a security badge, and I'm deep inside. And then Thad is texting me. And he's like, okay, at the back of the room, there's a door. Go through that door. And I'm just, I'm getting the ultimate guided tour of NASA by the main character. 
the guy who robbed NASA. So I'm not sure their security is much better than it was back then. Um, but it's, a, it's an amazing place. I mean, I was really blown away. I have, you know, a million photos on my phone of little robots that look like spiders and, and all these cool toys that probably cost $50 million to make that may never be used, right? But uh, it was just awesome. And I'm blown away by NASA, and I hope we continue to fund it for, for no reason. I mean, we fund wars. Why not fund NASA, right? And uh, it's a cool thing. So I hope, hope it keeps getting bigger. Yeah. Well, your research in other books has brought you crazy. I mean, this is part of what you do when yeah. you're writing this. You kind of do, since you write nonfiction, I feel like you act as a journalist in many ways. It was interesting when I went on the Internet to find out more about this, you know, real story. There was an article of all places in the L.A. Times that described a scene that you described in your book. And I'm believing you and not the L.A. Times. Yeah. They said when he went to go steal the rocks, he waved to the guard. I'm like, there's no – I know this kid is uh-huh. like – doesn't right. really – there's no way he waved to the guard. Yeah, he It did. was raining. Yeah, it was so that he chose so when, a night. But I'm just saying yeah. like, you know, journalists sort of look at you. Well, he sometimes – he has, yeah. you know, creative license with dialogue. But we don't get it right either. That I don't know where that misconception came from. Right. Well, I, I get attacked a lot. The form of nonfiction that I write – becomes very controversial every time I put out a book. Um, there will be journalists who will attack the book and say, it's not true, it's not true. But they never point out anything that's not true. They just say, it's not true. Um, so my style is very cinematic. I do all the interviews. I get the thousands of pages of information. And then I write it like a thriller. Um, so yeah, the scene uh, that you're talking about, uh, the LA Times got wrong. Um, he went on a rainy night on purpose because he knew the rain would mean none of the security guards would get out of their kiosks. And at the NASA Space Center, you have to drive at five miles per hour. So it's a really cool getaway because it's a slow-motion getaway. He's got a safe, a 600-pound safe in the back seat. He's, it's him and two girls, the, a 19-year-old and like a 21-year-old, who are his accomplices. And he drives up to the kiosk and just waits there. And they open the gate and he drives out. It's pouring outside. Nobody waved at anybody. And there are actually a lot of facts in here that the other article got wrong. Um, because I had access to the FBI files, which they obviously didn't. And I had access to Thad, which they definitely didn't. Um, so, you know, I do get attacked a lot, and it, 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 I kind of enjoy it, because I know that the people attacking me are actually just attacking the fact that I use recreated dialogue, that I, that I set the scenes in a very dramatic way. Um, Mark Zuckerberg never pointed out anything that was wrong. He just said it's not true. Um, you know, Facebook said the movie's not true, the movie's not true. But they never said anything wasn't true. Um, and that's happened in my career throughout. It's a... Uh, it's a stylistic issue, which I understand. I get that there are journalists who would not write a book this way. Um, I choose to. And I put it right out there in the front of the book. Right in the first chapter, I say, this is what I'm going to do here. So you know what I'm doing. Um, and that upsets journalists, too. And they all uh, review my author's note. <laughs> Every article about a book of mine has a review of my author's note. Um, and I think it's funny. It's, it's, it upsets them. It upsets them somewhere deep inside. Um, <laughs> and, and it cracks me up because the truth is I put it out there. This is how I'm going to write it. And you can choose to read it or not. I feel it's a very valid form of nonfiction. Um, and uh, a lot of people agree with me. And there's a few people who don't. What did Thad think? Thad's read this. What yes. does he think? You know, there's parts of it he likes. Um, and there's parts of it that make him very nervous. And there's parts that he hates. Um, he's scared because he knows there's going to be a lot of people out there who do not like him who are going to read this. And he's delusional, obviously. And in the book, I make it very clear that he has these delusions. He wants to be James Bond. You know, while he pulled off the caper, the James Bond theme song was playing in his head. Um, and so he always pictured himself as a movie star. And it, you read the book and you say, well, this guy wanted to be larger than life. 
Also, um, he doesn't like that I gave Axel Emmerman such a prominent place in the book. I love Axel. I love Axel, he's too. he's so quirky. He's wonderful. And yeah. NASA gave Axel, they named an asteroid after him as a gift. Um, so there's an Emmerman asteroid floating around the sun somewhere. And uh, Thad didn't like the fact that the hero was really the guy who brought Thad down. Um, so there were aspects he didn't like. But on the whole, I think he's happy his story is getting out there. You know, he spent ha- a large portion of his life in jail. He spent seven and a half years in jail. And he served his time, and he feels like he deserves a chance to tell his story and move on. And uh, whether he'll be given that chance to move on or not, I don't know. Um, but uh, I think in, in the end, he, he's happy with what's happened. As a journalist, I also Googled Thad, and he's got some very highly intellectual, <laughs> crazy website. I really didn't understand any of it. Yeah, I don't I understand it that's either. Him. No, okay, I don't understand it either. But it is him, yes. So it's like, okay, and... Um, this copy, which is pre-release, didn't have any photos of him. Are there photos of him in the real book? No, I don't think there are, I, but there are photos online, and all these newspapers have had a great photo of him in the spacesuit. I, yeah. I saw it all over the place. Why didn't you put it in the book, though? Because Yeah, I we talked about it. I talked to my editor about it, and I had, gave him all the photos, and they just decided, you know, it's, uh, we're going to leave that to people to search it out. Um, but we did put his love letters. He goes to jail, and every day he writes a love letter to the girl. Um, and uh, they're in the book. Um, and uh, yeah, she was. Those are the actual letters. Those are the actual letters. The that's, that's Thad's crazy writing. So um, you'll see his level of love for a girl he knew for three weeks and then wrote letters to for three years. Exa- yeah, he, he's eccentric for sure. <laughs> yeah. At this point, I think that it's probably a good time to open up for questions. I have a bunch more for Ben, but uh, I don't want to ask what maybe what you guys are thinking. So if you want, you can go up to the mic. We have one set up there, or you can yell it out. We're pretty informal here. If you want. I didn't pick this date. I think the Pratt did. Did, did you? So maybe you guys were not doing an accident. I don't know. Um, it's also the anniversary of Thad got arrested on the 33rd anniversary of the moon landing. And... Uh, I believe the FBI picked that date on purpose. Um, but uh, he was brought down on the anniversary of it, and, uh, and now we're here on, on the anniversary of it as well. So it is pretty wild. Yeah, but I didn't pick the date, so it's, it just well, happened that way. I like it. I like it. It's yeah. good cosmic energy. How about that? <laughs> um, so my question is, in the book, they make a big deal about going into the lab and being you know, the rocks that can't be exposed to X, Y, Z. He's taken this safe now out... For all sorts of trips. So is there any consequence to the actual like value or NASA value of those rocks? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. So the reason Thad, one of his reasons for doing this is he's working in the lunar lab, and he sees a safe that's essentially marked trash. Because once moon rocks have been experimented on, they're no longer in the pristine condition when they were brought back from the moon. So he said, you know, NASA then puts them in a safe and leaves them in a corner forever. And they're still just as valuable to collectors, but to NASA, they can no longer be used in whatever random experiments they're still doing on moon rocks so many years later. Um, so Thad steals a safe full of used moon rocks. Um, the reality is, is that I don't know how many current experiments are going on with moon rocks at this point, um, but the, the value to a collector is still the same. I don't think a collector really cares that much, although he had sex on them, so I'm sure that that either decreases the value or increases the value in some way. Um, But I do think NASA was very upset, and part of what they said at trial was, we no longer know what happened to these moon rocks. We have no, you know, we can't tell where they were over the last few days, so they're no longer of any worth to us. 
Um, and that's part of what his sentence was so harsh. Um, so I don't know. Um, it's a good question. I'm not sure what the, the actual value of a moon rock is. It, it's, it's still it's whatever someone will pay for it, I guess. Um, so You know what? We have a $14 trillion debt. Let's start selling this. Well, that's what he says God. in the book. He says in the book, you know, NASA wants to fund a mission to Mars. Start selling moon rocks. Um, I mean, obviously, if they did that, the value would plummet, and then they wouldn't make that much. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. But there's, you know, there's only 840 pounds in existence. You kind of want to keep it all in one place. I think it's, you know, I understand that. What I thought was kind of not laughable, but the takedown of that is pretty funny in terms yeah. of how serious they are. All the guns, yeah. everything. This that kid, he's like, he's wearing shorts and a t-shirt and he's got the James Bond theme in his head and he's just had sex with his girlfriend on Moon Rocks and he's with a stoner guy who just ate a whole pizza and is completely out of his mind. Um, and they walk into a restaurant and every single person in the restaurant is pe- between the ages of 30 and 40. And Thad looks around and thinks, this is a little weird for Orlando, but it doesn't dawn on him that everyone there is an FBI agent. Um, it's 100 agents. They close a major highway. There's helicopters. And he's, they're sitting at the table, and Thad's like going on about um, they should make a movie out of my life. And Tiff, you know, the girl is sitting there with him, and the, the, the stoner guy is talking about, tell him about the rocks you have. Tell him about the Mars rock. And, and then they walk outside, and they get into a car, and the next thing you know, there's 100 guns and machine guns. And, and the FBI took it extremely seriously because they had no idea what they were going to run into. They didn't know who this kid was when they arrested him. They thought he could be a part of a criminal syndicate. He could be a spy. They had no idea what they were going to run into. Um, so it is a pretty wild scene. Um, and uh, that, you know, he was completely taken by surprise, which is shocking to me. I would think, you know, you're probably going to get caught. But um, he didn't know. Oh. Yeah, I mean, the whole, whole uh, story about how he got the rocks is like truly a James Bond moment. But that he didn't follow it up and just be a little bit more sophisticated right. about how to unload it is... Yeah. And he didn't even know until he read the book what was going on behind the scenes on the FBI side. So he was amazed oh, to know so- that Axel Emmerman and the FBI had been talking that long. Um, he had no idea. And he had thought Axel Emmerman, he never had seen the guy before, even to, until I put the book out and you know, he looked on the line and finally found out who this guy was. He knew nothing about this guy. And he actually thought the guy was fake from the beginning and was an FBI guy from the beginning, which he was not. He was just some mineral dealer, this guy who trades rocks for fun, um, and his wife was named Crystal. It's, it's great. This character is great. Yeah. And, you know, I do wonder when this book is out how, like, his life will change. Oh, it's changed. Axel wrote me an email the other night. His email went on for five pages about how many camera crews in Holland were camped outside his house right now. And Axel remembers this guy. You have to see this guy to believe it. Never been out of Antwerp. He's a Poppenjay expert. Poppenjay is a sport that I had never heard of where it's, there's a wooden bird on a hundred foot pole and guys stand around and shoot at it with crossbows and this is a sport that they do like golf in Antwerp so he's a Poppenjay expert and trades rocks uh, on, uh, and, and he's just loving it he's loving yeah. the fame and the way you, know? you portray him he's just ner- a nervous Nelly I just see him like with tall black socks on in gym right. shoes or something like he's like he's just right. this great character in this in this book for sure we should mention that this book just made the new york times yeah it's going to be a new york times bestseller so um on the first week wow. out so it's doing very well yeah that's fast yeah it made it in a few days so I'm i mean you about have it. a reputation but, but that is fast moving I mean, along that's nicely fantastic. Yeah. yeah yeah ugly americans is one of my you know favorite books and every every wall streeter read that book <laughs> but outside of wall street it 
you know, for some reason it didn't quite catch. We've been trying to make that movie for a while, and I sold the rights originally to Mark Cuban's company, um, 2929, and then, then it ended up being at DreamWorks, and now it's at Paramount. And I wrote a draft of a screenplay, and Robert Shankin, who wrote that really cool HBO series, The Pacific, wrote a draft of the screenplay. Um, but it still hasn't gone yet, and Spacey's attached to it still. Um, we're working on it. I would love to see it made. Um, and uh, sooner or later, hopefully it will. But uh, Sex on the Moon is the next one being made, and hopefully Ugly Americans would be after that. But I would love it. it, it we're going we're gonna to keep trying on that one. So, yeah. We actually have a Facebook question. Oh, sure. Kind of kind of uh, piggybacks off of that question. Yeah. They were asking if you had a choice to play, who, who would play Thad Roberts? Who would you recommend? I'm personally thinking uh, Jason Siegel from How I Met Your Mother, but <laughs> yeah, you know that's an interesting. One. I, I I've, I've thought about it a lot, and, and I I like Justin Timberlake. I think he's awesome. Um, I think Rob Pattinson would be awesome, the guy from Twilight. I think uh, you might have to bulk up a little bit, but I think he'd be a really good actor for it. Um, I've heard Shia LaBeouf's name put out there. Um, there's a lot of. It's got to be someone young, good looking, but could also be geeky. Um, so it's it's a character that I think a lot of different actors would be able to sink their teeth into. But yeah, Topher, Topher Grace, Topher. Topher is cool. He was going to be in Twenty One for a while. Uh, that was one of the people that almost did Twenty One. Um, but yeah, he's cool. So, you know, it's a mixture of things. I do have people that I really like uh, who have done a great job. But the reality is, for me, um, you know, the book is mine, and I know that the movie is theirs. And I do try and input as much as I can. But in the end, I want the movie to be the best movie it can be. And you know at some point you have to sort of let it go and let them do what they do and hope that it works out. So your main power is before you sell it. You know, before you sell it, you can say, I want this person to work on it. I really want to have control over who writes the screenplay and I want to have some say in casting. But once you sell it, everything else isn't yours anymore. Um, And so if they decide we're going to shoot this in, you know, Iowa and it's going to take place at, you know, instead of Facebook, it's going to be MySpace. You wouldn't be able to control that. I was lucky both times. I, I liked both movies a lot. I think The Social Network was a dream come true. I mean, it was a phenomenal movie. Um, 21 was a very fun movie, and it's a movie every 21-year-old kid watches before they go to Vegas, um, which I also feel bad about, <laughs> because then they go to Vegas and lose a lot of money trying to play blackjack. Um, but I, it, it did what it was supposed to do, and I thought that was great. So I have been very fortunate. You know, Sooner or later, I'm sure a bad movie will be made from one of my books, and I'll feel horrible about it. Um, but you know, in the end... Uh, you have to decide. You can't worry about it too much because you'll go crazy. And uh, Hollywood is, is insane. I mean, the way things get done, it's amazing any movie gets made. I mean, after seeing a movie get made, I'm in shock that any movie ever actually gets made. Why is that, though? Well, there's so many people involved, and there's so many huge, like, you know, battles over the smallest details, and there's so much money involved, and then they have to okay $50 million to a... And I've seen movies on the, during the table read of the script when they have all the actors sitting around, a movie can get canceled then. And so it's like even at that point, everybody's in the room ready to make the movie and they can pull the plug on the movie. And so every step of the way, you'll go crazy worrying about it. Um, if it happens, it happens and hopefully it will be good. Um, I like to be there and I like to try and input but in the end, unless I decide to be a director, I'm not going to have any control. I was going to ask, would you ever just go to screenplays? Um, well, screenplays, I, I, I like writing screenplays, uh, but it's not, I don't want to spend a year writing a screenplay. So for me, the books are more important. Um, and in the end, the screenwriter doesn't have a lot of control either. It's all the director. And I would never be a director because I can't even direct anything in my household. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I have a, a 16-month-old who controls my house. Um, so my wife is the director at home. I would never be the director. Um, so I, it's not something I could do. Um, but it's not your 
Yeah, screenplays, if, if, a, if a studio asked me to do an adapt, uh, a screenplay, I would definitely do it. But in the end, they don't even want to do that. They, they would rather hire someone who is an A-list screenwriter, and that's the way it'll get made. And if I say I want to write the screenplay, I could write the screenplay, but I might put off the movie getting made by six to eight months when they read my screenplay, say thank you, and then hire somebody. Uh, so, you know, it's just Hollywood. It's the way it works. They want someone who's, who's done that, um, who knows what they're doing. And I've been lucky so far, so hopefully it'll keep going that way. He still wants to go to space. I mean, he's a little delusional. He, he knows he can't do it at NASA, so he's hoping private sector. Um, he's getting his PhD. Well, he just left. He was getting his PhD at Utah. He had gotten back into Utah, but now he's trying to find somewhere else to finish his PhD and uh, trying to put his life back together. Um, you know, we'll see. He's got a lot of impulse issues, I think. Um, but he's very smart, and, and hopefully he'll land on his feet. And hopefully this whole thing of a book blowing up and movies won't, won't destroy him. It'll be something he can use. Um, you never know when you do a story on someone whether they're going to react well to it or, 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 you know, who knows. But hopefully he'll, he'll use it as a stepping stone. Yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of different influences. I've been a big reader all my life. Uh, my parents had a rule when I was a kid that we had to read two books a week before we were allowed to watch TV. Um, yeah, so at the time I didn't like it, but now I love it. Um, and uh, it, but, so I say my obsession with television is what drove me to be a reader. Um, but... Uh, I, my influences in writing, you know, they've changed over the years. In the beginning, I was reading only science fiction, and then I was reading Michael Crichton nonstop, and then I was reading um, Hunter S. Thompson, I think, is a big part of my development as a nonfiction writer. Um, Tom Wolfe, obviously wonderful. Sebastian Younger, I think, is unbelievable. Um, and he's hardcore. He'll dive into Afghanistan, and, and I'll go to Vegas. <laughs> so, I mean, he's on a whole other level. Um, but I've had a lot of different influences um, along the way. Um, but, you know, I fell into nonfiction. I was writing thrillers. And then I ran into these MIT kids, and I started hanging out with them. And they had all this money, and it was $100 bills, and I couldn't figure out why. And the next thing I knew, I was on a flight to Vegas, and, and I kind of joined the team for a while. And then I said, I want to write this story even though it's true. So I didn't set out to be a nonfiction writer in any way. Um, so my influences weren't really nonfiction writers. Um, they were thriller writers. And then I just wrote a nonfiction book like a thriller. Maybe that's why I get in trouble so much. But, I mean, that's, that's how I always decided to do it. So it worked out that way. I mean, that's a great question. So Aaron Sorkin is, you know, is the mind behind that scene. It's not in my book. Um, we do know that in the beginning of the story, he is dumped by a girl. You know, we have his blog from that day. He starts it off, so-and-so is a bitch. Um, and then he hacks into the computer system while drinking some beers. Um, so we know that part of the story is true. Um, we don't know what happened with that girl, although I actually just talked to someone who did find her, so someone might know. Sorkin might know. He did his own research as well, and maybe he knew more about her than I did. Um, I don't know that he would try to reconnect with the girlfriend at the end. I do know that he was not dating the girl he's dating now through that story, which is part of what you know, he said. Oh, I was dating the same girl through the whole story, which actually isn't true. They started dating towards the end of the story. Um, but whether that scene where he's in the law firm trying to reconnect or not, I don't know. I mean, you'd have to ask Sorkin, because I, I wasn't aware of that. Um, but, um, you know, who knows? Um, but there was a girl, and she did dump him. And so, you know, it's interesting opening scene. That dialogue is fantastic. I don't know that we know what was said between the two of them when she dumped him, but you try and picture a girl dumping Mark Zuckerberg, and that's probably what it looks like. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, think, I think it's a pretty neat scene. Yeah, I don't have a next book yet. I'm waiting for the next college kid to email me. Um, but uh, I, uh, I write in a very intense, horrible, physically demanding marathon session. It's almost one session. So I do all the research, 
The research takes a long time. I get inside the story. I get everything. And then I lock myself in the room as much as I can, and I write. And I'll write page numbers. It's not about hours. It's about pages. And in the beginning, it's six to ten pages. And by the midstream, I'm writing 20 pages a day. And it's, it can be this incredibly long process, or it can be a short process. But it's very intense. And usually about three months solid writing. And then I have a finished book. And I write it straight through. I don't stop. I don't edit. Um, lately, I've actually been dictating into a Dragon software machine. Um, so I'm using, I, I don't know if I'm the only author who's doing it, but I wrote this whole book, uh, I spoke it. Um, and then you have to edit it because, not because, uh, but because the machine picks up weird words. <laughs> so, you know, it, a lot of the sentences don't make any sense, and then you have to go through and fix it all. Did you but do dialogue that way, I did too? the whole thing that way. Oh. I'm sure it looked insane. Um, but uh, it, it's, uh, for me, it's a marathon. You really got to get the whole thing out uh, at once. And I always tell young writers, you know, who are writing, I'm like, just finish it. Don't even worry about what it is. Don't worry about if it's bad. Don't even try and edit it. Because the hardest thing in the world is to get to that end. And, you know, you hit page 130 and you're dying. And you just have to power through and keep going and keep going and finish. Because if you start editing yourself, you'll never finish. And that's the hardest thing. And you can edit it once you're done. And maybe parts of it will be crappy. But at least just finish it. Well, we're so glad that he did finish it. Oh, ben Mesrick, thank you so much. Let's put our hands together and thank him Appreciate very much. It. For thank coming you very in. much. Thank you.